Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. Welcome back to Movie House Concessions on the MHN Podcast Network, where each episode we pull a random film from the display case to see if it tastes as fresh as the day it was released. I'm Patrick. And I'm Chad. And for today's episode, we're reviewing Sin City from 2005, uh, directed by Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, and Frank Miller, and starring Bruce Willis, Mickey Rourke, Jessica Alba, and Clive Owen. But before we get into our discussion of this film, first, a quick summary provided by Chad. Oh, this one won't be quick, but I'll give it to you. <laughs> 2005 Sin City, based on graphic novels by Frank Miller, is an extraordinary crime anthology that immerses its viewers with flamboyant style, high-octane storylines, and a mob of amazing characters who range from grotesque to heroic. The film opens by introducing us to the salesman. The salesman meets a gorgeous woman on the balcony of a penthouse, offers her a cigarette, then the two share in a passionate kiss. The salesman assassinates the woman by shooting her and lets her pass on in his arms. The assassin tells the woman that she doesn't need to be on the run any longer, but he will cash her check the next morning. The next story features police officer John Hartigan, who is set to retire from the police force. Late one evening, Hartigan tracks down pedophile-slash-rapist-slash-killer Rourke Jr., who is attempting to rape and kill an 11-year-old girl, Nancy Callahan, in a warehouse. Hartigan's surprise arrest is thwarted by a mild heart attack, allowing Jr. the opportunity to shoot the righteous cop. Hartigan is able to recover and chase down the pedophile. Rourke loses his ear, hand, and genitals to Hartigan's gunshots, but Rourke's life is spared when Hartigan's corrupt partner, Bob, shoots Hartigan in the back. Hartigan has sacrificed himself to save Nancy's life. From there, an elephant man-looking ex-con gets lucky one night with a gorgeous blonde known as Goldie. The ex-con, Marv, wakes up to find Goldie mysteriously deceased in the bed next to him and the police breaking down the door to his flop house. Marv escapes before the police can arrest him and finds refuge with his bodacious lesbian parole officer, Lucille. Marv begins to investigate Goldie's death in an attempt to clear his name by interrogating Sin City's scummiest informants. Marv makes his way to the Rourke family farm to get revenge for setting up Goldie's death, but is captured by a mysterious cannibal named Kevin and placed into a cell with Lucille, who has had her hand removed from her body. Very George Lucas-esque. The duo is able to escape, but Lucille is executed by a group of corrupt cops. Marv is able to kill off the police squad, but learns Cardinal Patrick Henry O'Rourke, or just Cardinal Patrick Henry Rourke, duh, along with his protege Kevin, had Goldie murdered. 
Goldie's twin sister, Wendy, accompanies Marv back to the Rourke farm where the super strong ex-con rips off Kevin's arms and legs, allowing his pet wolf to eat away at the remains. Marv then makes his move to the Cardinal onto Cardinal Rourke, who confesses to killing prostitutes like Goldie, along with Kevin, to consume their souls. The Cardinal is ultimately plucked apart by Marv, who is abruptly captured and arrested. Instead of having his mother murdered because of his existence, Marv pleads guilty to murdering Cardinal Rourke, Kevin the cannibal, and all of the prostitutes that they murdered. Marv is electrocuted for all of his quote-unquote crimes, but not before being rewarded by Wendy, who thanked Marv for avenging Goldie's death. Next, Shelly, a Sin City waitress, finds herself being taken advantage of by her ex-boyfriend, Jack Rafferty. Shelly's current boyfriend, Dwight McCarthy, steps in to threaten away Jackie Boy. Knowing that Jackie Boy and his crew are up to no good, Dwight follows them to Old Town, Sin City's prostitute-controlled red light district. After Jackie Boy threatens Becky, one of Old Town's younger prostitutes, Gail enters the scene with a bevy of prostitutes. Miho, the martial arts expert of the group, assassinates Jackie Boy and his horde, turning Jack into a human Pez dispenser. While examining the body, Dwight learns who and what Jackie Boy is, a quote-unquote hero cop. To protect the old town rules and the prostitutes who live by them, Dwight drove all of the dead bodies to a nearby tar pit in an attempt to bury all of the evidence. Upon Dwight's arrival, four mob-hired mercenaries attempt to kill Dwight and take all of the evidence, but Miho is there to save the day again. When Dwight and Miho return to Old Town, they learn that Becky, fearing for her mother's life and the elimination of the current Old Town way of life, sold out Gale to Manute, a mob enforcer. Manute took Gale as a prisoner, as a power move, and now Dwight must try to save his part-time lover. Dwight agrees to exchange Jackie Boy's severed head for Gale's life. However, Dwight filled the former cop's head with a grenade, which blew away Manute and the members of his crew. The Old Town prostitutes gunned down the rest of the crew, restoring the Old Town way of life. Luckily for young Becky... She was allowed to escape during the climatic shootout. Remember Officer John Hardigan? Well, Hardigan wakes up in a hospital bed to the sight of Senator Rourke, who is Junior Rourke's father. The senator informs Hardigan that Junior is now a dickless freak and the Rourke legacy is in jeopardy. Hardigan is told that he will be framed for Junior's crimes. Nancy's truth will be believed by anyone and Hargit again will rot in jail for years with only Nancy's secret letters to keep him going. In present day Sin City, or eight years later, Nancy's letters cease making their way to Hardigan, and he is worried that she has been killed. After a mysterious yellow man leaves an index finger in Hardigan's cell, Hardigan tells the authorities everything that they want to hear and is released from jail with a tarnished reputation. Hardigan goes looking for Nancy, but erroneously leads the mysterious yellow bastard directly to her. Now a hot 19-year-old exotic dancer, Nancy Callahan is 
reintroduced to the man who she loves, the man who saved her life, John Hardigan. Unfortunately, their reunion is short-lived as the yellow bastard kidnaps Nancy and tries to finish what he started as Rourke Jr. Hardigan tracks the yellow bastard and Nancy to the Rourke farm, where Hardigan stabs the yellow bastard and beats the senator's offspring to death. With the yellow menace gone, Hardigan knows that he must do whatever it takes to protect Nancy's life forever. Hardigan draws his gun, killing himself, confirming his undying love for young Nancy Callahan. And remember Becky, the turncoat old town prostitute? Well, Becky stepped onto a hospital elevator and is greeted by the salesman who is now dressed as a doctor. The salesman offers Becky a cigarette, and Becky knows she's a goner as the elevator doors close. The end. All right. Not an easy film to summarize. No, not at all. Multiple storylines. All right. Sin City was released on April 1st, 2005, the same day as The Upside of Anger with Kevin Costner. Uh, Same month as Fever Pitch, Sahara, Kung Fu Hustle, House of D, The Amityville Horror, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and Triple X, State of the Union. Made on a budget of $40 million, it grossed uh, just over $74 million in the United States and just uh, over $158 million worldwide. was the 32nd highest grossing film in the United States in 2005, right behind Constantine, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and Four Brothers and was the 29th highest-grossing film worldwide uh, behind The Island, The Interpreter, and Memoirs of a Geisha. Uh, it was based on the Sin City graphic novels The Hard Goodbye, The Big Fat Kill, That Yellow Bastard, and the short story The Customer is Always Right from the Booze, Broads, and Bullets trade paperback collection. It was followed by a sequel in 2014, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, uh, it's been in active development for a television series, both live action and an animated, ever since the original film came out, but it still has not actually come to fruition. And Rotten Tomatoes has it at 77%, 77% critics and 78% audience. And that is the numbers on Sin City. So, Chad, I will start off with how familiar, prior to seeing the film, which I'm assuming you probably saw around 2005, yeah, I was not familiar with this one at all. For whatever reason, this graphic novel um, never made it my way, really never even popped up in my radar. Uh, most of Frank Miller's work at least came across my radar at some point, but for whatever reason, Sin City didn't make it my way, and I never read the graphic novels ahead of time. But I did see the movie straight away. Um, the previews to it looked great. Everything about it looked great. The cast, the visuals, so I knew I had to see it as soon as I could. Much like you, I did not, I knew I was aware of Sin City, the graphic novels prior to this film coming out. Um, you know, and I was a fan of Frank Miller, more so for his uh, Batman stuff, uh, but I had not read the, the graphic novels before this film came out. Uh, I read them after the film came out uh, because I really enjoyed the film. And I got to tell you, they are very true to the work. <laughs> they are very, very true to the work. I don't know. If, have you had an opportunity to read the graphic novel since you've seen the film? I did see one or two of them. I did. Uh, it's now been probably five to ten years. I found some at a, a comic book store and grabbed a couple just to 
read very quickly. And yes, uh, from what I could tell reading them, they were very true to what I saw on the screen. I mean, almost a shot for shot sometimes. Yes. I mean, that, that, that yes. there was a distinct style that, that Robert Rodriguez, Frank Miller, and Quentin Tarantino for his little portion of this were trying to create. And they were adopting, using that as basically their storyboards for how the, the film was supposed to be shot and the visuals that they were trying to incorporate into uh, the image on the screen. And they did an amazing job. I, I know one of the criticisms of, of this film, uh, much like 300 was, eh, it's too close. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, fuck you guys. It's a different medium. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's this film caused me to go look at the graphic novels and I'm more impressed with this film because they adopted that. And I thought the same thing with uh, Watchmen. That yeah. Once you compare the Watchmen film to the graphic novels and the comic books or whatever, that it, it they did a great job, once again, like you said, of storyboarding things, uh, using them, the true source material, to put it on the big screen, which is cool. That's what you want. You want to see what you're reading in the comics come to life um, in a grand way, and that's what happened. No, I, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, that was the one of the criticisms of, of Watchmen, and and I think that was an unfair criticism. I like, you know, I had read Watchmen, didn't remember the the graphic novel until I, you know, and I reread it after watching the film, and and I appreciate that the fact that they use that is kind of like, hey, we've created this world. They 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 use a little more creative license in Watchmen for oh, many yes. of the vi- visuals, but this film is, I mean. The dialogue is lifted almost directly from the trade paperbacks or the, the graphic novels. It, you know, even a lot of the visuals, the angles that they're shooting at is lifted directly from it. It's not in motion. So you get to see that aspect of it, but it is it, it conveys it really, really well. Yeah, and that's what I was hoping to get from you in this uh, podcast, because I hadn't gone back and looked at him, like I said, except for a brief reading like five to ten years ago. And, yeah, they were fun, and they were good to look at briefly, but I didn't go through them in detail, I assume, the way you did. So it was good to hear that you concur that that's what their intention was, was to make it a true live-action version of the graphic novel. I was surprised. I mean, once again, if you read the graphic novel, very different from 300, because I remember when we talked about 300, the movie has a lot more detail than the film. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. some very they duplicate visuals and they hit all the elements of the graphic novel. But the the movie has so much more. This movie, it hits all the essential elements, but there is additional information in the graphic novels there, you know, especially in Marv's story that there's a lot of inner monologue, which I think probably would have played pretty dull for him, for people to just watch him walking and talking to him or thinking to himself uh, with that overdub that it would have slowed down the pace of the film. So they've greatly shortened up his story portion of it, but it is a really, really good adaptation of it and really catches the, the mood and the, the climate of what was in the graphic novels. And that's interesting. You say that because one of my few criticisms of negative criticisms of this is the way they try to pulp fiction, this movie and take the various storylines and interweave them around each other a little bit. I wish that there was a way you could have narrowed it down to maybe two or three or maybe just two 
and did it sort of like what uh, Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tino did with um, the Grindhouse film and sort of just make it like two of them instead of just interweaving them. Because to me, you get very quick glimpses of things early on in the movie. Then you get two large chunks back to back. And then you basically round it out. Or actually, three, I should say, because you go from Marv to Dwight back to uh, Hardigan. And then you got the very short clip at the end. I don't know. I'm not an expert at a, this graphic novel, but if they would have taken two source material uh, novels and just made them into two broader, say, one and a half hour mini features back to back would have have come across a little bit better. You know, you know, the, the crossover, the bleed over the characters, um, such as Marv appearing in Hardigan's story. Um, and I think Clive Owen makes a reference to Marv as well, um, mm-hmm. it, that, 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 that exists in the graphic novels as well. So it's, the, there okay. is, they're, they're very much an interconnected universe, if you will. Uh, they're, they're very aware of each other, uh, or at least some of the characters are aware of each other. I, I kind of disagree with you. I think this was just right is the only only one that really had a lot of more detail was the Mar story. The okay. the Dwight and Hardigan stories are pretty much all on the screen. There's not much more. There might be a couple little additional lines of dialogue, but not enough that you could have stretched this film out and and supplanted that Marv story to, to really go further. And the only thing that is written directly for the screen is the Becky sequence at the very end, which is just a connection to the the sequence at the very beginning which was in a graphic novel so okay so that because it was a story from what i read if i remember correctly yeah so that whole sequence with becky at the end was uh, an add-on that but for the, for the purposes of the film and i thought it bookended the film really really well compared to uh, you know and connected it to the, the very beginning of the film but i i you know this is one of my all-time favorite uh, adaptations of the graphic novel because it's true you know, we, we, you know, this is one, once again, one of our cinema day comic book movie or episodes podcasts, if you will. And this is, you know, much like 300, much like Watchmen and not like, um, <laughs> Batman, the movie, which was the last one we reviewed. Uh, this is based off of material and really relies on that material. Speaking of Batman, the movie, uh, I don't know if you recall from our, our podcast a couple of months ago when we discussed that classic 66 film. But I, I have a gripe. This on Rotten Tomatoes has a 77% critics rating. Batman the movie had a 79. Oh, oh Jesus. <laughs> so I want to, it's, it's basically a, what the fuck? Explain it to me, Chad. What am I missing here? Why, why do critics like that film better than this one? The only thing that they have to defend themselves with is nostalgia. And for the 66 stuff, that's about it. Uh, this That movie is a piece of shit compared to this thing. This thing is Citizen Kane of movies compared to Batman, the movie. So I don't get it. I don't get it all. And I don't know why our Australian friend in, works for Rotten Tomatoes. Wink, wink. Um, so they just make no sense in this case. Yeah, I mean, I am I completely baffled and perplexed. Other than this, this also has nudity and violence that that one doesn't have. So potentially that might give a, a one more critic to uh, to give it a Batman a, lot, a little bit more positive because it's at least a family accessible 
this did have quite a few more ratings, critical reviews. Right. I think that one only was in the 30s. This one had 256, you know, professional critics reviews. But uh, the audience score is much higher for Sin City than it was for Batman the movie. But I just had to pitch that bitch since that, that yeah. fact was I, out there. I, I'm with you on that one. When you said the scores for this one, I even thought the scores for this one were low. I'm one of those, and I'm not going to tip my hand too much here, but this is one of those movies I still think is even if you don't really like the story or you like the character, you like some of the graphic nature of this. It's a fun watch. This is a great movie for visuals and it's just fascinating to look at how they put this one together. Well, and and that's something I wanted to get into. And since you broached the subject, we'll go right there that this to me, I see, I mean, all film is art. But I really see this one as art, almost the artistry of what they what they tried to convey and do with this to make it look like it's coming off a black and white comic page. Mm-hmm. And, and it is just so impressive. The special effects and the sets and, you know, the costume design, everything that they did to create that atmosphere of this film that I think it's just so, so damn interesting to look at. It is so different than everything else that is was you know is being released around the same time even from other comic book films you know like the marvel films which you know started a couple of years later with iron man but you know the, the there were the uh, you know 20th century fox x-men films in the sony spider-man films around this same time and they they had a very realistic visuals to them and this was like taking something off the page the only other film other than the two city, Sin City films that I can recall off the top of my head uh, that was similar is The Spirit, which wasn't very good, <laughs> but it had similar visuals. Yeah, and that's the thing. This one is just one of those visually erotic films you have to watch at some point. Like I said, even if you don't like the material, the way they make the cars look like super fast, like a cartoonish style, but it still looks real. One of the scenes that's really not talked about much but looks so cool is the tar pit scene and how they use the lights to show the the uh, hedges that are shaped like dinosaurs. That is just so freaky cool. I mean, you take somebody and try to take them into a spot that looks like that in real life, you'll scare the living shit out of them. Um, how they make Kevin look, how they make Yellow Bastard look, how they make Marv look. It's so realistic that you don't see any flaws any place. It's so beautiful, and the black and white does not take away from this at all. I know you and I joked about this a couple of days ago, but once you then throw the color into this, that it makes the color more appealing, and it stands out more, and it tells like the yellow bastard character more. It's so beautiful to watch that I agree with you. This is a gorgeous piece of art. Whether you actually like the material or not, you need to see this, in my opinion, just so you can see how they made it. It is so unique and extraordinary that it's a head and shoulders above even its uh, peers at that time. Well, and and you talk about the use of color, these splashes of color for very specific things. The, the yellow bastard. I mean, it's a la, you know, Spielberg and Schindler's List with the girl with the red coat. I mean, that that's that's exactly you're you're drawing emphasis to certain certain things in the film that because of that use of color 
it just that splash of color really ex- accentuates something and i re you know i like the what what they did in it and they do the same thing in the graphic novel you know it's once again they're incorporating the same motif that they're using from the graphic novel and putting it into a moving visual medium yeah and it's it's great um the stories are very good the visuals help cover up any flaws in the stories or any flaws in the character it's beautiful i can't say anymore it's just gorgeous to look at well it's very much an ensemble piece there's not a a lead actor if you will what whose performance if one stands out to you that you really wanted that you really liked in it who did you think was did gave a great performance yeah it's one of those things i love ensemble movies um they are my favorites to watch because you get so many different flavors of ice cream in one time and everybody i thought really stood out in this mickey rourke was probably at a peak at this point in time his turn as marv it was really really good because that's a very complicated character to try to portray with all the makeup and everything and still get the character across. And I thought he did really, really well. Jessica Alba in her brief time as gorgeous as she is. She conveyed that Nancy Callahan character very, very well. Powers Booth is always going to be one of my favorite actors. And even in his short time on the screen is a very, very powerful actor. And I appreciate it. I mean, there are so many people I like, I really didn't dislike anybody. And even people like, um, Nikki Cat, who shows up for maybe two minutes as one of the assassins, um, mob assassins, he is absolutely brilliant in his short period of time on the screen. I just couldn't knock anybody for their acting in this one. No, no, I'll agree with you on that. That you know, I was possibly going to follow it up with the "Hey, did you?" There's a performance you didn't like, and because I was going to turn you turn it on its head and say, "No, I liked everybody's performance in this." That, and you had. Big actors like Elijah Wood playing the cannibal, and he doesn't say a damn word. <laughs> you know, it's right. it's all a vi- once again a visual medium, which is what happens in the graphic novel. But he he's out he's outstanding in it. You know, I, I think what is kind of what you just said. Uh, Mickey Rourke is kind of the breakout of this film. That he, his portrayal of Marv is just so so interesting it's just i love watching marv on the screen and and not and not to say that i didn't like dwight by clive owen or i didn't like uh you know hardigan by bruce willis or uh, nancy callahan for uh, by jessica alba i really just liked you know his performance it's just a fascinating character and he just brings it to life so so well in it and it's just like the perfect casting with a perfect actor you know and you had as you said you know powers booth didn't do much in the film but i like much like you i like powers booth you know i like him in films and he was really really sinister in that brief what two-minute scene he does with Bruce Willis. Well, he probably didn't even do it with Bruce Willis it, since you never saw him on screen together at the same time. But they, they, there was, I mean, there was, he, they, they, from top to bottom, everybody gave really, really good performances and fit the role and didn't seem to have any egos about what they want to do. You know, Bruce Willis has a, a reputation for, you know, an outrageous ego and, you know, demanding things from the film, you know, or, or in a film, and in this, comparing it to the graphic novel, 
this is a, a, a very true adaptation. It's not like, hey, I need you to beef it up so that I have a much bigger role, you know, because I'm John fucking McClane. No, he 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 played his role and his character had to die. <laughs> That's what happened. So, and he does. Now, granted, he gets to make out with Jessica Alba, so, you know, that's probably a good thing, but he very much fit that character. And another couple, two or three I want to bring up real quick. I don't know why she doesn't get praised more, but Rosario Dawson is just absolutely gorgeous on top of being an extraordinary actress. She makes every character she's ever portrayed believable. And she this is the type of material that, just is putting her at the peak of her skill level. Um, she is so believable as a badass prostitute in a very shady area, blah, blah, blah. And she kicks the shit out of this movie and the material they give her. Another person I was glad to see again, and God rest her soul, Brittany Murphy, and what little screen time she had was so believable. And I wish she would have lived longer because I thought she was great in her performance here and many, many other performances she had. And then you get the little weird things like a Nick Offerman pops up. You don't, <laughs> I know that's just one of those things. It's like they threw so many great people. Madsen's in here for what? Two minutes as his typical badass self. I mean, you pull a Rutger Hauer out of nowhere and throw this classic actor in there for a very key role. This is great. They they not Carla Gugino, another one who's bodacious set of tatas show up and make everybody happy. It's just they pulled these people, this huge ensemble together, and they all knocked it out of the ballpark. No, I'll agree with that. Rosario Dawson is, I mean, mainly because uh, she loves comic book films and fantasy films, and, and you know she tends to play in the pool of films that and television series that i like she's obviously one of my uh, favorite actors or actors uh, actresses out there she does a great job as gail you know we didn't even talk about benicio del toro i mean having a very what i would describe unglamorous role i mean it was he's not a sympathetic character he's a dick he's you know potentially a rapist and 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 a, a cop on the take and you know gets killed and has a gun sticking out of his forehead or the barrel of a gun sticking out of his forehead for most of his time on screen so i mean it is it's that you could bring in actors like that and give them small things to do uh, is it say, says a lot and you know the, like you said nick offerman like i was watching it this time and I didn't, I, that was the first time I picked it up. And I was like, is that Nick Offerman? I got to look that up. And I'm like, oh shit, it is Nick Offerman, Michael Clark Duncan, you know, mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, he, doing another film with Bruce Willis. But although they don't have a scene together, but I mean, he was great in the film as well. Uh, another actor we've unfortunately lost. I mean, it's the cast was outstanding. I mean, this is, uh, I would, be, I would argue to say one of the greatest. You know, films adapted from a graphic novel ever made. Right, right. I mean, Nick Stahl, there's another one who's, he likes to make extraordinarily weird uh, movies and stuff like that, or weird characters in movies. And this one fit him perfectly. And he pulled off the yellow bastard and Rourke Jr. perfectly. So, and once again, not a glamorous role. (laughs) No, not at all. No. I mean, that, that say, you know, he when th- when he made this film, I mean, he's coming out of Carnival. He's coming out of Terminator 3. I mean, you could say that he was somewhat writing a career high 
around the time of this film and he took a very supporting role because it, it is not one of the heroic characters it is one of the villainous characters and has less screen time than pretty much all the main characters so. yeah it's it's just a wonderful cast i can't i can't praise this one more all right anything else you want to talk about it before we wrap it up well you mentioned earlier that the dialogue and came basically straight from the graphic novel and so one piece of dialogue in this movie hit me i guess because of the time that we're recording this and the way of the world right now but powers booth like i said love this man as an actor comes up with this quote while he's talking to hardigan where he basically says that power don't come from a badge or a gun power comes from lying and lying big and getting the whole damn world to play along with you once you get everybody agreeing with what they know in their heart of hearts ain't true You've got him by the balls. And that was one of the best speeches or short quotes I had heard in a movie in a long, long time because it's fitting the world that we live in today. And I just sit and go, thank you, Frank Miller, or whoever wrote this stuff. And I praise you for coming up with great dialogue in a movie that is beautiful to look at with great actors and extraordinarily entertaining. I'm looking it up right now. I want to see if that was in there. Power doesn't okay. come from a badge or a gun. Power comes from out of lying and lying big and, yep, comes directly out of the graphic novel. Awesome. That's good to hear. Well, uh, after it's all said and done, on a scale of one to five, do you consider this film a bad one or do you give it a high five? Oh, this is high five all the way. Um, this is probably the best one we've actually reviewed so far, in my opinion. I, I have just my little tweaks about how all the storylines cross over each other. I think it sort of takes some of the momentum away briefly, but for the most part, I like all the stories. I think they're very well done. I like all the dialogue. I like all the actors and actresses. I like the visuals, especially it's almost a flawless movie. Um, and I can't recommend it more to people. As I said earlier, if you don't like graphic move, novels, the comic book movies, whatever, just check this one out because it is a fun, fun movie to look at and watch and experience. Yeah. I'm going to agree with you entirely as I, it is a, uh, a five film. I mean, it's a perfect five film uh, across the board. I think that the acting is stellar. I think the writing is stellar, uh, the dialogue, I think the visuals are unbelievable, very artistic. It's, I mean, to me, it's just beautiful to watch because it, it literally is like you're looking at a canvas that's moving uh, constantly. The one exception I will have is that uh, Nancy Callahan uh, was topless in the graphic novel and they didn't get Jessica Alba to do that. So yeah. <laughs> she has a no, she has a no nudity clause in her contract. And to be honest with you, it doesn't. I mean, it's not essential to the story other than she's supposed to be a stripper. And then when not Callahan Hardigan, sorry, when Hardigan sees her, I mean, it's, you know, from the little girl to the, to the 18 or 19 year old stripper that he sees on the stage at that point, it's it, that has, has a powerful moment in that, but I think it's just as powerful in the way they do it in the film. Mm-hmm. I agree a hundred percent. She, they didn't take anything away from the character. No. And, and I understand that, but I will, 
you know, like we talked about Carla Cugino, who she did do a nude scene in the film, which was <laughs> uh, was amazing. But looking at some of the people that they were talking to, like Sarah Jessica Parker and oh God, I can't remember some of the actresses that they, t- you know, went after for that role. I'm going, yeah, I can't see them doing it. And and to be honest with you, it's such a small little role that I don't think it really mattered. Right. All right. Well, that's it for our review of Sin City. Please let us know what you think in the comment section below. Uh, and for our listeners over on moviehousememories.com, please rate it the film from one to five stars on the page as well. If you've enjoyed your, today's review, please don't forget to subscribe to our account on the our YouTube channel, the MHM Podcast Network, where we have many, many more film reviews from yesterday, today, and beyond. Well, that is it for this episode of Movie House Concessions, one of our Cinema Day comic book episodes. Uh, Join us next time when we come back and review another film. Until then, I'm Patrick. I'm Chad, and if I ever see Josh Hartnett, I'm running the other way as fast as I can. Well, yeah, but that's because I saw 40 Days and 40 Nights, and I just can't (laughs) stay that film. All right, and this concession stand is now closed. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The song Rock On Brudda is brought to you by Marwan Nimra at natintine.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Movie House Concessions, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. <laughs>